Identity. Identity is a kind of a popular topic in our society. People get their identity stolen. I mean, that wouldn't have meant a thing 20 years ago if somebody talked about stealing your identity. You would have been like, what? They got shapeshift. And, you know, now we know what that means. Like they will, they will get your name, they get your social security number, and then they'll just do all kinds of mischief. Run up bills, take out credit cards, whatever they can do. And, and, and you may not even realize it. It can go on for a year or so before si- finally, you know, something, you get some letter and you owe money and you're like, oh, my identity was stolen. How come nobody ever steals your identity and does something good with it? I see. That wouldn't, that, that wouldn't be an interesting thing. Like you're getting near retirement, you know, and you, and you check your, oh, I wonder what my Social Security benefits are going to be. And it's like, you have paid $3 million into Social Security and you get the maximum. Like, what? I never did that. What happened? How did that happen? Oh, someone stole your identity. You've got a credit rating of 850. Like, woohoo! Nobody ever does it for that reason. But when you think about it, when you came to Christ, you're, you're wrecked credit before God. You know, you didn't even have a credit rating with God. It was that bad. It was so in the tank. It was in the negative, negative numbers with God. And all at once, you know, you're, 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 you're cruising around with an 850 spiritual credit rating because that which was Christ is given to you. It happens because through faith we come into union with Christ and are identified with him. His, his blood shed for us means that his righteousness is credited to us. And even, even more than just that judicial act of that being credited to us, it is, it is this life, this new life in him. We could go to John 15, which we use quite a bit here in the church. The vine, the branches, we're the branch in the vine his life organically lived out in us. That's why we can bear fruit in him. And without him, we cannot bear fruit. It's the union with Christ. We could look at Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or how about Second uh, uh, Corinthians? Sorry, Second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away; behold, the new has come. Or even First Corinthians sixteen: You are not your own; you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We got the bargain there, didn't we? His life for ours, his righteousness for ours. And, uh, and so that's kind of what we're looking at today. Christ gives us a new life. And Paul is the, the, the main example of that in the New Testament. It's true of every Christian. It's not just true of Paul. But Paul kind of lives up to being one of the best examples of it. Uh, I'm glad that, that we were caught up before we started reading today, that Scott uh, told us that, because, yeah, we are joining sort of in progress where we left off. I told you last time I had to kind of break it at a funny place because it just there was so much material and not enough time. So we're coming right back into it. This is like Jesus coming in mid-sentence. He's still talking to Paul. It's on that Damascus Road experience, and, and Paul is in this text, relating that. So he's looking back, telling the story as he stands before the, 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 uh, the hoity-toity people there in Caesarea, all the Roman leaders and, and great men of the city. And of course, you have Festus and, uh, and you have Herod Agrippa II and Bernice. Did I catch you up? 
Good? So he's giving his defense. He's telling this story. He's telling what Christ said to him. And if we really pick up at this point in the story, what we see is this is his life after conversion. This is, this is the new life that Paul will have, which will be completely radically changed from that point forward. So first of all, Christ gives us a new identity. A new identity. So uh, Jesus has here identified himself with, uh, to Paul. Paul has personally met Jesus for the first time, the one that he has been persecuting. And now Jesus gives him this instruction. He says, but rise and stand upon your feet, uh, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. All right, Paul's trash credit store is now like the gold standard. It is, it is perfect. He goes from being a persecutor of the church to what he calls a servant. A servant and a witness. From this moment forward, that's his identity. And you've read the New Testament. Yes, most of you have read the New Testament maybe multiple times. And you can attest to the fact that many, many times, even in the greeting. Uh, of the letters, or if not in the greeting, then later on, somewhere along the line, Paul will identify himself this way again and again. Paul, a servant. Paul, a bondservant uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his awareness. This, is, this, this becomes exactly who he is. He's not a lord over the church, Paul, that is to say, but rather he's a servant of Christ. And he's a witness, though he never uses that as the, in the way he uses servant. Like he identifies himself as a servant. He rarely identifies himself as a witness, though he does talk about 1 Corinthians 15 as he's born as one out of time. He witnessed the Lord Jesus in his resurrected state on the road to Damascus. But witness is more of a, it's more a function of what he did. Not so much a moniker that he t- attached to his name. You know, Paul, a servant and witness. It's Paul, a servant but one who had witness and did witness. It was always the resurrection of Christ. You see that again and again, that, 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 uh, that, that he is a witness to the fact that Christ is raised. And there's been such a radical change in his life. The same thing can be said of Joe Ordinary Christian. How many Joe Ordinary Christians do we have here today? A few of you. Okay, the rest of you are like... Whew. Okay, but yeah, no, the change is a radical change even for the ordinary Christian who doesn't happen to be the Apostle Paul because we have been engrafted into Christ where we once were apart from him, apart from God, without hope in the world, without God. Now we are grafted in. His life is ours. The old is gone. All things have become new. Our sins have been forgiven our future has been changed. It's been changed from hell to heaven and, and to be with Christ. Everything is different. Our identity has changed. There's a story which is not true that I'm going to tell you. 20 years ago before the internet, I would have said it was a true story. And now I realize it's probably an apocryphal story uh, about the church father Augustine. Augustine. And it's Augustine, not Augustine. Just mark that in your head. Whatever you're starting to say, say the opposite. It's Augustine. Anyway, so Augustine, very, very important church father, extremely important to to the theology of the Reformation and so on. But uh, back in the day, he he was kind of a player. That is, before he became a Christian. 
he was profligate. That's a nice cleaned up way of saying he was a hound dog. And uh, one day the story goes, which again, is probably apocryphal, but the story went, he was out walking on the street, probably Alexandria, Egypt or someplace like that. And one of the prostitutes that he had previously visited um, was coming the other way. And she sees him and she said, you know, you, Augustine, it's me, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and the story goes that he said, but it is not I. And he turned around and ran the other way, which was a smart move on his part, had it really happened. Uh, I like this story, even if it's not true. I mean, that, 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 is, that is so true in terms of what he said. The point of the story is true. It, we, it is not I. We are not who we once were. We have been radically changed through union with Christ, our very identity. We've gone from, in, in Paul's case, persecutor of the church to, to servant and witness of Christ. We have radically changed who we are. Secondly, Christ gives confidence. Verse 17, Jesus is still speaking to Paul. Uh, He tells him that as he fulfills the mission of Jesus, that he, Jesus, will deliver him. It says in the first half of verse 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. Now, this is bold. Not for Jesus to say. I mean, it's just this. Why wouldn't he say it? But for Paul to mention it at this point is bold. When I say at this point, think about the point that this is situated in. <laughs> he is standing there on trial. He's out in I, kind of like maybe a little arena-like thing. You got a gallery. You got all the chief potentates and power brokers and everybody that thinks there's something and somebody that got you know, slipped in and they let him in anyway. And, and, and you've got, and you got Festus and you got Agrippa and his sister Bernice and all of this regalia and all of that. And there's Paul talking to them. And think about what he's saying. He's saying, oh, and by the way, you Gentile folk that I'm talking to here, uh, Jesus promised to rescue me from people like you. <laughs> that's In effect, that's what he said. That's very bold. Remember that Jesus had also told him that he would suffer. Because you, you look at this and you go, was, was Paul overstating the case by quoting Jesus? You know, I'm going to rescue you. Because did Jesus ultimately rescue Paul in every circumstance such that he didn't suffer, such that he didn't end up being put to death? Because Paul did suffer. And in fact, Jesus had told him that. It says in, in Acts 9, and this is during the original time of, uh, of his conversion, and Jesus then speaks to Ananias, who's going to go and, and baptize Paul. And uh, it's at that point uh, that Jesus says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So did Paul think he would never die? Was Paul saying, hey, I don't care what happens, you can put me in front of Nero or anyone and I'm just going to sail on through with Jesus' protection. I've got blanket coverage. Is that what Paul's saying? No, that's not what Paul's saying. In fact, if you look at 2 Timothy, he kind of puts it in perspective. Because think about this. He tells, uh, he tells Timothy, I'm about to be poured out like a drink offering. My time has come. Clearly indicating he knows he is, this is his last letter in the New Testament that he writes. It's right before he's about to be beheaded. And he says he knows he's being poured out. But then he says this. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
So what was, what was Paul's confidence? That he would just sail through, that he would walk through the crowd, and, they would just turn, and he would just escape there, and he would keep his head on his shoulders? Was that, what, was that the kind of confidence of rescue and deliverance Paul was thinking of there? No, he knows he's going to die. But he says, Christ is going to rescue me. What is he talking about? He's talking about his soul. He's talking about his life. He's talking about his faith that that he will be brought home with Christ, that there's a place that's been prepared for him and that he will make it through all of that even though he will suffer. That's the confidence of every believer. It is a promise to us that our souls will be kept secure, that God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. We can... We can say boldly with the writer of Hebrews, as the writer of Hebrews is quoting the psalmist, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. So when I picture Paul in front of all those Romans, I picture him using a certain hand gesture with him. Not that hand gesture, sorry. Uh, the hand gesture I'm thinking of is uh, from the Matrix with, with, uh, with Neo. You remember that one? Where he's like, Right? Bring it on. Bring it on. I, Christ, Christ is on my side. Christ, Christ has promised to deliver me. Do your worst. Do your worst. I'm going to be okay. All right, thirdly, Christ gives us authority. This part at first might seem like a stretch until I explain it to you, and then you're going to go, aha, I get that. I think I see that, and I think you're right. Why wouldn't you think that? Um, so this is this the last little bit of, of verse 17. To whom I am sending you. To whom I am sending you. And if you're kind of into the Greek, you're probably a, a step ahead of me here. But if you think about the word apostle, the word apostle, because I think this is Paul being commissioned as an apostle, which comes with that authority. Anyway, um, apostle comes from the Greek word. Are you ready? Apostolos or apostolos. That sounds just like apostle, doesn't it? That's how we got the word apostle, from the Greek. And guess what the verb of it is? The verb for the apostle is to send. Apostello. Apostello. So you hear that in that. So I think it's very hard to miss this if you're reading that in the Greek, that, that Jesus, in effect, because it's the same commission that he gave to the original twelve. He was sending them forth. They were his witnesses to, 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 tell, the, to tell the people of, of his resurrection because they'd been witnesses to it. And this is Paul's new identity and the authority that goes with it. Think about the 180 here. Think about the mirror image. And I love the mirror image of it when you really set it side by side and think about it. Where was Paul on on that trip where, where he sees Jesus. He was on the road to Damascus. Yes, the road to Damascus. Why was he on the road to Damascus? Because the high priest had sent him there. He was sent. What was he sent to do? Well, it, was a, it had to do with the church. What it, well, he was sent to Damascus to destroy the church. That effectively was his commission. He was an apostle of church destruction turns around, now what is his commission? He's an apostle. He's a sent one. He goes with the authority to destroy the church? No, to, 
to grow the church, to plant churches in all the places, to, to win people to the gospel, to Christ, and to plant churches and appoint shepherds. And, 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 and he becomes then not, just, not a destroyer of the church, but a builder of the church. And I just love that. We as believers have authority. And it's a similar authority. And, and hang with me, because I don't want to scare you here when I say this. Um, we have apostolic authority as, as Christians today. Just let you think about that for a moment and grow very uncomfortable. Because you should get, get a little uncomfortable when I say things like that and, until you understand where I'm going with it. I'm not saying that there are modern apostles. There are no such things. There are people who call themselves apostles, and they are not. But, um, but our authority in the church, the church, right? That's all of us together in the church. Our authority is apostolic authority in that the authority of the church, Ephesians 2.20, is that we have been built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and his apostles. And I, I've said this before. How often do you lay a foundation assuming you're just not a horrible, horrible builder? You lay the foundation once, and then you don't lay another foundation and another foundation. If, you, if you're doing that, you are, yeah, you're, you got problems. Uh, there's one foundation. It is the word of Christ, the word of his apostles. That's been laid. And on that foundation of the apostolic authority, we, the church, the church of the apostles, built on that, right? We have authority to preach the gospel, to open the gates, the, the, the gate of heaven so that people will come in to bring people. And when they come into the church, we have authority in the name of Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, and Spirit, to baptize them as believers and, and to incorporate them, bring them into and receive them into the church. And, and we have authority to, to break bread together, the, the Lord's table, and share in that fellowship. We even, we can go so far as to say, Matthew chapter 18 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that we have the authority then to put people out of the church if they are no longer walking with Christ. So we have authority. The authority has been given to us by Christ. We still have his mission. We still have his message. We still have his authority. Yeah? Chew on that. You're like, some of you are looking like, I don't know about that. It's true. All right. Next, Christ gives us a message. Christ gives us a message. So this is, this is good stuff. This is a very densely packed theology in these next few verses. You could make this into three sermons, I'm thinking. You could do one sermon for sure. We're going to do it in about a page uh, really quickly because of the, the, the task at hand. But uh, this, is what he, this is what he says, what Jesus says to Paul in terms of his mission and his message. To open their eyes... I'm talking about the Gentiles, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance." That's a lot. I'm not going to break down every single phrase and verse and word in there, but let's, let's just look at this in terms of a gospel primer, a gospel primer first. And the order isn't maybe how we would normally think about this, how we would normally lay it out, but the first thing you see there is that Paul is saying that, that and, and Christ telling Paul this, that, 
that people have gone astray. People are, are like, as Isaiah say, says, a sheep that has gone astray. We're like the prodigal in the far country. The people we're preaching the gospel to are people who are in darkness. They are in the depth of sin. They are under the power of Satan. And the preaching of Christ calls people out of that. It calls them to turn away from that, to repent, to turn from those things and turn to God, turn to the light. Now, here's the question. Do we turn or does the gospel turn us? Does God turn us? Does the preaching of the word turn us? Who turns us? All of that, right? Every bit of that, every bit of that. God has to work in our hearts to cause our eyes to be open, to be awakened. It has to happen through the preaching of the gospel by gospel messengers. That's why Paul can be said to be turning them. But at the same time, then, they are to turn. Having received and heard the message of repentance, they are to turn. And then again, because it's a little bit out of order, the next thing you get is the outcome of believing the gospel message. It says that they have the forgiveness of sins, first of all. And that's huge, in case you hadn't figured that out. There's a lot of different ways of talking about salvation, but you have to admit that at ground zero, you need the forgiveness of sins. Because the wages of sin is death, right? And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that sin issue is what salvation is about. That has to be dealt with. There has to be the forgiveness of sins. And then along with that, it says, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So I think when you look at that, you're looking at, first of all, a place meaning within the church body, that you, that you come into Christ, and as you come into Christ, you come into the church. You come into his people. You receive a new family. You receive a place within that. But then that's also looking toward eternity, isn't it? What did Jesus say? I go to prepare a, um, Oh, it's a place. That's right. A place for you. I go to repair, prepare a place for you. So there's a place. That's part of the outcome. Forgiveness of sins and a place. And then... Uh, And then finally, what you see there is that it's through faith in Christ. The gospel depends upon faith in Jesus. It is by grace through faith alone. And what does that faith look like? It looks like this kind of faith here. It is a repentant faith. Genuine faith in Christ is not just an acknowledgement in your mind. It is a wholehearted turning toward him, trusting in him, Turning away from darkness, literally, you know, he talks about bringing forth, you know, deeds that, that, that are fitting with repentance. So genuine faith will produce good works. That's what we should expect to see. And Paul wasted no time. He was obedient to it. He began right there in Damascus. He takes it to Jerusalem, Judea, to the uttermost parts of the world, just as we've seen through the book of Acts. All that, all that stuff that was happening was the fulfilling of the original Assignment given to him by Jesus. And that message is still our message, believe it or not. Did you know that? You're like, on to me. You saw this coming. The message that Jesus gives to Paul, although it had some unique permutations for him in the time he lived, going where he went, you know, we're not going to have to go to Damascus or, you know, Judea or those places necessarily, but, but the message... The message of the gospel is the same. The interesting thing is when heresies come along, heresies, 
cults, what's the thing they always attack among, you know, of the, of the various aspects of our faith? What is, the, what is the thing that they, a lot of times they won't attack Jesus. In fact, this is what they'll do. They'll attach Jesus. They'll attach Jesus to their movement. Like, oh yeah, Jesus is on our side. It's the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, right? They're, like, they, they, they're okay with Jesus. Jesus works out, but they attack the gospel. The gospel's not the same. You know, Paul says if somebody comes to you preaching a gospel other than the one that I brought to you, may they be accursed. And so you have some of these people coming to your door and preaching a different gospel. Uh, I know I told you this not long ago. I shared that experience. I'm just going to share it again just briefly at this moment. When those more missionaries six months ago or so came to my door and we had a conversation, the, the tack that I took was to ask them about the gospel. And here's what I said. I said, hey, so here's the gospel that I have believed upon which I've taken my stand, that which is saving me, 1 Corinthians 15, namely that Jesus Christ died for sinners, that he was buried, that he rose the third day, that by believing in him, I would have life in his name. Now, that's the gospel I've believed, and apparently you don't think that's good enough, so tell me what's wrong with the gospel. And they went... Well, uh, uh, well, we've got a prophet. Uh. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 it was like it just—it was just like it just short-circuited them. It was—it 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 was wonders to behold. But it, it, yeah, it's the gospel. Know the gospel. Know it backward and forward. It's really not that long. It's not that involved. Yes, there's a lot of theology and doctrine that's important, but the core idea of what the gospel is—that is—that's laid out for us right here, and we should understand it. Christ also gives help in danger. After Paul relates the story of his conversion, his ministry, he says, For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, say nothing but that the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Consider again how bold this is. Paul's standing there. Surrounded by all of these hostile, you know, or, or, or disinterested, whatever, leaders who think they're so much better. And they're looking down their noses at Paul. And there's Paul. He's in chains at this point. We know he's, he's chained for this little uh, celebration. And uh, he's like, hey, you know what? God's been my help. Kind of like saying, I'm good. God's helping me through all of this. Through Christ, Paul always was able to rely on the help that God gives. And it's not a help that depends completely on outward circumstance. It's not a help that depends on money or power. You remember how Felix was trying to get money from Paul? You would have thought, well, that might have been a good way for God to have helped Paul. Just send some money, pay the, you know, pay the bribe, and, and get out. It's, it, it's not about money. It's not about power. It's not about what the things that, that we look about. It is, it is God himself. God. God is our refuge and strength, our ever-present help in times of trouble. The psalmist can say, I look to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Or how about the Lord is on my side? I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, we may not ever face quite this scenario. Um, I hope most of us won't. But uh, 
But in Christ, we are children of God. We know that he loves us. We know that he is our helper, that the same, the, the same root texts in Scripture that Paul could call to mind. I mean, yes, he had the words of Jesus spoken directly to him, but, I mean, he had the whole word of God, and he could count on the fact that God would not desert him and that God would help him. Now, if you say to me, but Pastor Jay, it's easy for you to say such things. Because obviously you're a really brave, courageous guy. Um, it's really, really not true. Not true. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not naturally. Uh, it, but you may say, well, but I'm a really anxious person. I just, by nature, I'm a very, very anxious person. And you're almost making me feel guilty for feeling anxious because you're saying that I shouldn't fear because God's my help. Here, listen. Anxiety is a normal part of life. Most people experience fear and anxiety. So I'm not saying that, that there's anything wrong with you if you feel anxious. And the truth of the matter is, sometimes you should take medication for that. And the truth of the matter is, some people are just the way they were born with their DNA. They're a little more anxious than the next person. But here's the, here's the dirty little secret. No matter how naturally anxious you are, this truth is still the same truth. And you can't go wrong taking a hold of this truth. You know, the worst thing in the world is to go, well, I'm anxious, and so that truth makes me feel bad. That truth should make you feel better. It may not get you all the way to, you know, like the level of General Patton or something like that, but it's going to help you. It's going to help you to take hold of that. D.A. Carson famously talked about, how many have heard this illustration from D.A. Carson? He talks about the two Hebrew men at the first Passover. Any of you? It's been on YouTube and stuff. He was a professor of mine. I, I always enjoyed him. But he, in, in this illustration, he's preaching a sermon. And he tells this illustration at one point. It's like, you, you've got these two men who, who take part in the original Passover. The original. The moment when the destroyer is going through Egypt and, and killing the firstborn. And they're in the house. And they've done what God said to do. They're in there. They're, they're observing the whole, the whole thing. They've got the blood of the lamb across the lintel of the door and all of these things. And they're there. And the one guy's just nervous. He's just an anxious, nervous guy. And he's like, well, did you, were you sure you got the blood? Yeah, yeah, we got the blood. Well, are we sure that God's not? I mean, is he really going to pass over? Did we do, are, are we doing it all right? Is everything? Yeah, yeah, we're good. We're good. Well, I don't know. You know, I can hear the, you know, listen, listen. You can hear the screaming of the of the Egyptians. How do we know that we're really, you know? And the one guy's like, "Yeah, dude, it's okay. It's okay. God's God's got this. Don't worry about it." So you, you got one guy who's really brave, and one guy who's just totally nervous and anxious. And and then Carson, at the end of the illustration, he asked the question: Which one of these is going to still be alive in the morning and be able to, you know, be redeemed out of Egypt? Which of the two? And uh, and the answer is both of them. Both of them. Because it's not about the relative strength of your faith. It's not about how much anxiety may come and, and plague your heart and mind. It's about what you are trusting in. Whether or not he is faithful. And the Bible says he's faithful. The Bible says he's your help in time of trouble. So, yeah, strengthen the, the wobbly, knocking knee. Don't, don't get hung up about... The worst thing to do, and I know if you're anxious... If you're an anxious sort of person, then now you're going to be anxious about being anxious. So don't be anxious about being anxious, okay? So now I'm anxious about being anxious about being anxious. Thanks a lot, Jay. Yeah. No, lay hold of the help that, that is there. God has help for his people. And then 
at the, at the very end here, Christ gives opportunity to stand by his grace, by God's help. Paul says, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand. And so I stand here testifying. Well, that's what he was supposed to do. He's supposed to be a witness. Testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. There Paul is, bravely standing. He's standing his ground, and he, and he won't back down. And it sounds like a song, but it's not arrogance. It's, it's not bravado. He is simply standing there, obeying the command that Christ gave him from the very beginning. He's, he's telling this story to a captive audience. See, they're all sitting there, you know, eating their popcorn. You know, like, I wouldn't want to be that guy, you know. And, and uh, poor little guy looking at him down there. You know, I think his knees are shaking. He's got those shackles on. I'm glad I'm me, right? Paul's down there thinking, I've got them exactly where I want them. <laughs> they can't get up and walk out. They're not going to get up and walk out while the king is sitting there on his throne, right? They're stuck there. Paul has a chance to say whatever God brings to his mind and lips. And and, and this is his opportunity. In this new life in Christ, right, that Christ gives us, we are not here to live our lives aimlessly. Now, do we live rather ordinary lives in many respects? Sure, absolutely. You still have to go to the grocery store and buy food, don't you? You still have to pay whatever the prevailing gas price is. When you pull in with your vehicle, you have to go to work. You plan your vacations. You send your kids to school. and You you know, you fill your life with a lot of stuff, just like the world around you. But the difference is you are in Christ, and your life belongs to him, and you are spiritually connected to him, and you've been given a message. It's a wonderful message. It's a message message of forgiveness and hope and, and eternity, And so, God is going to give you opportunities to speak the message, to speak the message. We should be looking for those. Those are called divine appointments. At least that's the term some people have used. Just this week, one of the guys uh, texted us and said, hey, pray for so-and-so, because I was just, it was just an ordinary day, and I'd been praying that God would give me opportunities, and then somebody just literally walked up to him and started asking him spiritual questions, and he was able to share the gospel. That's that's a divine appointment. That's one of those opportunities. In those closing moments, Paul confesses that Christ suffered according to the scripture that he rose from the dead. What is that called, otherwise known as? It's the gospel. It's the heart of the gospel. I love it. Paul just keeps getting it back to the gospel. He's able to say, "This this this is my message. Maybe that's all you'll get to say, so you need to know it. You need to know what the gospel is. That, that which you have believed, that upon which you have taken your stand, that by which you are being saved, that Christ died for sinners, that, that he was buried, that he rose the third day for our justification. You remember that, you'd be able to share that. I love how Paul just takes this moment when he's defending his life and turns it right back around to the gospel. So who knows? You don't know. You don't know what the circumstance is going to be. Nobody can tell you. You know, you get on a plane and you sit down next to a millennial and you think, how am I going to talk to this person? They've got earbuds in and they haven't said a word to me yet. Maybe God just causes their earbuds to die. I don't know. 
I don't know. They look at you and they go, ah, why would God let my earbuds die? And you go, you know what? <laughs> you know what? But God, God can give us those opportunities. We should pray for those opportunities. Right now, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna finish out here. And may I just say to you, if, if you are here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, we proclaim him to you. This is our opportunity. Yeah, we're taking advantage. We've got kind of a captive audience. But why, it's only going to take a couple seconds longer to say what we've been saying all the way through. And that is we have a message. And that message is from Jesus Christ, the risen one, the risen son of God. He died for sinners. He was buried. He is risen. And we proclaim to you forgiveness and life eternal in his name. If you will turn. Right now, according to scripture, it's not according to Jay, I'm not, I'm not picking at you or finding fault. I'm just telling you that this is what the scripture says. If you're without Christ, the Bible says that you are with Satan. That you are in darkness, that you are on that side of the fence, that your life is going in that direction. You're going toward darkness, you're going toward a a lost eternity. You need to turn. You need to turn, see in Jesus Christ the light of the world and be drawn to that and repent and believe in him. And we, we urge you to do that today. Man, if I were here today and I was, do you ever, Christian, do you ever wish for just one moment today you could, be an unbeliever for just a moment so you, could, so you could give your life to Christ all over anew. Ah, to have that experience. I would just, if you're not a believer, I just would wish that for you and pray that, that God would do that for you today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we are so thankful to you that you show us in the life of Paul a life radically transformed, a life completely changed, a new person, a new identity from the persecutor to the, to the preacher, to the apostle, to the builder of churches. Lord, we, we would want to see just those same, same kinds of changes in our life, Lord. We who know you, we pray that in the midst of all the busyness of life, that we might find those opportunities and that we might be quick and ready to give an account for the hope that's in our heart, to turn people uh, toward you, to, to announce to them the good news of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that somehow right now, even today, it's fallen somewhere on a receptive heart, that you would turn such a one from darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan to your kingdom, to the kingdom of Christ. May they come to know you through him and find their new identity in him. We ask it in his name. Amen.